0: What I've come all the way around to believing is that unit count, you know, how many doors is the absolute worst, dumbest measure of success.
1: Welcome closers, today we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you, this is season three on Profit. I'm your host Jordan Wayla and every week I interview world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actionable insights to help you grow your property management empire. Whether you manage a hundred units or a thousand, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Sweet Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Today, I'm talking with Steve Crossland, the owner of Crossland Real Estate Team, a local team in Austin, Texas, working with K-Dub. Steve has built a profitable property management company. And the reason I wanted to have him on the show is that he is known for... Having some clear constraints and parameters of what he is optimizing for. Steve is pretty much the opposite of one of these guys that's trying to get to $10,000 at all costs. He's running a clear, tight playbook, and there's a level of intentionality around balancing profit and growth that I want to tease out and discuss on the show. So this should be an exciting episode for anybody that is managing less than 500 doors and is kind of wondering, do I have to grow? Can I be profitable where I'm at? If you want some more clarity around those types of issues, this should be the episode for you. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you. All right, Steve, let's just get some background. How did you get into property management?
0: I was renting an apartment and the apartment manager in 1990 quit and came and asked if... uh, my then girlfriend and I wanted to become the property managers. So we took it over and it was an 18 unit building. It was in foreclosure owned by a bunch of doctors. Everything was in the tank in Texas back then. It was a uh, uh, birth by fire, really uh, over half the units were delinquent. I learned all about evictions real quick, moved from there to take a job at a 68 unit apartment and eventually started managing single family homes. And, uh, other multifamily properties. So do you still do some multifamily
1: today? No. What did you take away from your time doing multifamily that influenced how you did single family?
0: My biggest aha or wake up with the multifamily was when I managed a bunch of fourplexes. I had um, done the property management business kind of as a side gig for a while. Had a degree from UT Business School and uh, was a computer programmer. And put that job in 94 Uh, did some remodeling and some other things, but finally just decided, why don't I try the property management full time? And so I did, I grew it from basically 12 doors to over a hundred the first year. A lot of the growth was multifamily, were four plexes, eight plexes, duplexes, and eventually got up to about 240 doors and one day, I just made a spreadsheet and started running the numbers on uh, which of these units are actually creating profit and which are not. And it was really clear to me. I don't remember the exact number, but I also matched paired the income per unit with a what I called an effort score. And I just made that up. I just figured I, I work three times as hard per fourplex, eightplex unit as I do on a nice single family home. So I gave those an effort score of three. And then mashed it all together with the numbers. And lo and behold, I'm spending 90, 87, 90% of my effort on properties that produce 17% of the gross income. And so I mailed out letters to all my fourplex owners that same day and fired 25 of them. So I chopped 100 doors and it took a month or two for those to kind of shake out. And I didn't even try to sell them or hand them off or anything. I just got rid of them. And then I went down to like 135, 140. And suddenly I didn't have anything to do. All my work went away. No more evictions, no more police coming to the places. Uh, I got back over half my time and I gave away hardly any of my income. So that was my big aha with multi. Now I only stick with single family, uh, except in a rare case, a one off kind of thing. And to further qualify that, I'm guessing
1: that you're fairly discriminating in terms of the actual type of single family that you take on.
0: Yeah, I like to say we take the Honda Accord of rental properties. The number one criteria I look for is, will it attract a good quality tenant? If it won't attract a good quality tenant, and by that I mean somebody with good credit, verifiable income, they're going to be able to finish the lease, then I won't take the property. I have some good friends that take properties that don't fit that criteria and they make it work really well for them. But my niche is just to stick with the the bread and butter, peanut butter and jelly sandwich, your everyday rental house. They're not high end. They're not low end. They're kind of right in the middle.
1: So in terms of the overall kind of management philosophy, You talked about this analysis of basically portfolio analysis, which is so critical, and it's amazing how that gets overlooked. But it is also understandable, at least in the sense that there's inertia, and the thought is that the more revenue, the better. It can pay more salaries. Revenue, it, it can feel like all dollars are created equal when you're trying to cover your expenses if you're not doing that analysis. When you did the analysis, you acted within one day, which is pretty quick to run a spreadsheet and then send out these letters. You didn't even attempt a fee increase or anything like that. You just outright decided, okay, got it. So I have to assume then that what was broken for you there was not just the revenue per door equation, but it was primarily the the effort, the labor equation.
0: Well, the primary thing that was broken was my mindset. I had joined NARPAM early on. I was exposed to the messaging that we get at the conventions um, with the, you know, grow, grow, grow. You know what are you doing to grow your business? All these classes are about growing, and then you're uh, encountering people that manage hundreds or thousands of properties. I think at my first NARPAM convention in San Antonio in 1996, I think at that time I probably had about 65 doors, and I felt like I felt like a small guy. It's just kind of weird. I, I mean, I, there's ego involved. There's um, you feel like you're less than. Every time I'd add another fourplex or I'd add another duplex or another really, really crappy house, I didn't care what it was. I really felt good and I felt like I was succeeding in growing my business. And it wasn't until I did the math later on the back end that I, I said, you know, that, that's not really what I should be doing. So I fixed my mindset and I really just started looking at the bottom line, which is the net, net dollar per door. How do I increase my net dollar per door? How many of those doors do I need to create the income that gives me the lifestyle that I want and that will deliver me to my eventual financial finish line that I'm trying to get to? So to me, what I've come all the way around to believing is that unit count, you know, how many doors is the absolute worst, dumbest measure of success that we can use in property management. It can be effectively used as an internal measuring tool if we've attached to it our internal numbers and we know what each door means. But just to meet a guy at an ARPAM convention and if they manage 50 or 500 or 5,000 doors, we tend to assume that the higher number person is somehow knows something the rest of us don't. And I think maybe the smaller number of people, like me, maybe we know something that the higher number of people are getting ready to figure out eventually unless they're doing it right. Let's let's just say that there is a proper way to scale up, there's a proper way to watch your numbers and grow big and make it all work. If you're managing 4000 doors and as the owner of the company you're netting 10 bucks a door per month, then good for you. That's a that's a pretty good business, but you're spending all your time dealing with employees, attorneys, business issues. um, And I don't want to spend all my time doing that.
1: All right. Well, so that was a mouthful, but I have to say on the whole, on this point, Steve and I are in agreement. There's a lot that's wrapped up in that he distilled it down to mindset works for me. I think the mindset is the foundation of all good things that come to us in business. But what I would say is that the idea of using doors as a success metric is broken for a variety of goals. If you want to get to 10,000 doors, which really doors in that sense is a proxy for a, a nut of wealth, for wealth creation, Using Doors blindly as a metric is still a horrible idea. If you want to be small and have a lifestyle business and be profitable, Doors is going to be a weak metric. Profit, ultimately, is going to be the most effective mechanism for getting to wherever you want. If you want to go grow aggressively and you want to throw a bunch of money back into the business on sales and marketing, it has to come from somewhere. There has to be margin to put it back into the business. So I'd say pretty categorically, depending for pretty much all all goals, unless your goal is stress and poverty, profit's the place to focus. So let's talk a little bit about the industry norms. We recently performed an industry benchmarking study. We looked at a sample set of 50 property management companies and we pulled out some pretty interesting data. One of the key things that we highlighted in that study was that the industry average profitability when we adjust for owner compensation was right at 6% which is not a particularly inspiring number. 6% is a situation where um, something bad could happen. You could have an accident and and conceivably go out of business with with that level of margin. At the same time, you do do own a job, right? There is some freedom for being a, a business owner. And for a lot of business owners, they're not getting ahead because they're not thinking about this profit equation You have the brokerage side of the business. You have the property management side of the business. Do you also have some rental investments yourself? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how do you think about the overall mix of activities that you're engaging in for wealth creation? Where does property management kind of fit in that that overall portfolio?
0: Well, property management is kind of the foundation of everything. Um, Frankly, I could make more money if all I did was real estate sales, but that would be an up and down roller coaster. you got to kind of plan decade to decade. Um, We tend to go in four to seven-year market cycles in Texas. Right now, we're at the tail end of our seventh year of pretty strong appreciation and value growth in homes. So a lot of owners are probably going to be selling and cashing out. I don't want to get sidetracked on that, but we don't see it letting up like it normally would in a normal cycle. But I've always said that I believe that a property management dollar is a more valuable dollar than my real estate commission dollar. A property management dollar is a more valuable dollar because it's a recurring, d- dependable, uh, uphill downhill, good market, bad market. It's just stable and steady. It comes every single month, no matter what. And I would rather have more guaranteed dollars every month or, or fewer guaranteed dollars every month than more dollars in you know a hot sales market, but then you know the market tanks and you got to figure out how you're going to keep things rolling. So the property management and the sales side of my business work off of each other. I sell homes to investors that will sell into the portfolio. Already this year, I've sold five or six out of the portfolio. I've got four or five more coming online. So I'll lose properties to that, but I'll make a sales commission when we sell them out. And I'll I'll dip down from my 100-door max. I'll get down to 92 or 90 sometimes by July or September, and then I'll build it back up during the off season when I really don't have much going on. So that works for me. Um, The other thing I do, and it, it throws off a pretty good income, actually. The other thing I do is just try to live really cheap. I mean, live on a third or a half of what I earn every year and plow it all into real estate investing, my retirement accounts and all of that, and not let the lifestyle fluctuate with the income Just kind of keep a a good, steady lifestyle. And in those good years, make sure that that money is put to work and not simply spent.
1: Which is great for the business, right? You're actually you are the person that you're selling to. You have investments yourself. It's not a it's it's not a speculative thing. So coming back to kind of the the unit economics situation, when we looked at some of the other stats from the study, average revenue per unit of 164 bucks, average profit per unit of twelve dollars. Again, those numbers are anchored against that average profit margin of around six percent. What we see here on the whole is that there is definitely a very, very wide chasm between the folks at the top of the market, and the bottom of the market. Well, what stuck out to me was how low... In terms of profitability, people were able to get as a result of the subsidy that can come from other business units, whether that comes from the brokerage side of things, whether that comes from from maintenance. It's easy for there to be a a little bit of fog in terms of breaking out each of the individual pieces cleanly. How do you maintain financial clarity on the different pieces uh, of the business?
0: Well, my math is really, really simple. I expect a door, every door I manage is going to throw off about $180 a year uh, or a month gross commission income. And if I annualize that and then multiply it by 1.5, that'll capture all of the additional fees like leasing commissions, renewal fees, things like that. So each door should be producing about $270 um, per month gross commission income. Um, you multiply that out I expect the business to do you know roughly 300 a year gross commission income give or take and um, there's no overhead really for the property management business. I run it on a laptop with a cell phone. I have software I use promise software. Um, I don't spend any money on advertising other than you know like using showmojo and things like that. So what I call profit as a sole, you know, an owner operator may be different than what a big corporate entity calls profit. But I call profit, I take everything that makes it down to me, everything. And I divide it, I divide it into the gross number. And that's usually gonna be about 85, 90 percent. And it's low overhead, it's real easy to run. I don't have any employees. I probably work about a thousand hours a year on the property management business. And that includes doing the sales listings and things like that. So when you run it small and tight, there's a lot of benefit that can be derived from owning a property management company. Now, the downside, I I do everything myself, almost, pretty much everything.
1: Which, you know, is it a downside? Is it not? It really depends on what your goals are for those of us that plan on working and and having jobs, you know, there there are various categories of entrepreneurship. Some folks want to be completely out of the game, want to be on a beach somewhere. Some of us don't. For me personally, anytime I think about an exit or selling a business, part of what I factor in is that I will always be working because I enjoy it. It's what I enjoy doing. And so as such, you know, is it is it a downside to be working in the business? If you you enjoy doing doing it now?
0: (laughs) A lot of the messaging we hear, uh, I mean, you hear of like uh, fat shaming, body shaming, slut shaming, and all this. There's uh, this thing I guess you would call task shaming, where people say, well, if you're doing that, you're working in your business, not on your business. And people that preach, which I think is malarkey, you know, I'll do what I want to do with my life. And yeah if I scan something or I'm entering my own new tenant into my own software, uh, for somebody to say you're working in your business, not on it, and then to say it in a way that says that that's less than, that's it's really saying that that as people who wake up every day as human beings, we get up, we start our day, we do work, that there are some tasks that are worthy of a business owner, and that there are some tasks that are unworthy of a business owner. I, there is nothing unworthy of my time. If I can get it done better, cheaper, faster, and with fewer errors and mistakes, then I can do it hiring somebody, then I'm just going to go ahead and do it. Um, so I think there's a little bit of that too, where, um, and I fell into that also as a business owner, I owned a brick and mortar building, I still own it, but I rent it out, I don't work out of it. I had employees, I had a full time uh, maintenance guy, I had a Uh, office secretary that worked part-time. I had a full-time leasing agent and I kind of felt like I was running a real business. Um, but I had 240 doors and they were, they were stressing all of us out. Um, and I found that that's not my, that's not my jam. I don't want to be on top of people trying to figure out how to make them do things right and keeping track of what other people are doing. One of the analogies I use for that a lot of times is that some of us want to be on the field with the ball in our hand. Some of us want to be on the sideline calling the play, sending the plays in and out. We're on the field, but we're over there calling plays. And some of us want to be up in the skybox planning strategy, you know, the big picture stuff. And everyone should find out, where do you want to be? You know, are you a guy like me that wants to be on the field with the ball in your hand because you just love it? Or do you want to be on the sideline calling the plays? Or do you want to be up in the skybox? If you want to be up in the skybox, then you're the guy that wants to grow to ten thousand doors and create that big, massive business that's scaled up. What I do work. What I do works very, very well for me. I'll just say that. Yeah, that's great.
1: So I'm really digging this. What I'm digging is your pushback against generalized advice. As human beings, we want less complexity. We want to generalize. And part of sometimes what that means is ripping out the context that makes a piece of advice useful in order to broadly apply it. Where I'm going with that is you have the luxury of making the decisions that you just described as a byproduct of the fact that you're running a healthy business with strong underlying unit economics. Your revenue per door is high, the business is profitable, et cetera. If you don't, if your revenue per door is at 100 bucks, that's where there actually is quite a bit of credence to give into. Hey, you do need to outsource. You can't be affording to do these things. There is pressure that comes from dysfunction that can require you to behave in a certain way. But you can afford to call your own shots when the business is healthy, whether that means growing big, staying small, there's just way more freedom and latitude that you're actually afforded. That's the takeaway that I'm getting out of what you're saying.
0: Yep. Yep.
1: So when you do think about growth, you mentioned you mentioned a hundred door cap a second ago. Talk to me about that. Where does is, is the hundred number basically the constraint of what you can manage yourself? And you've just personally decided not to that you don't want to manage other people. That's where that hundred comes from?
0: It comes from backward engineering my financial plan to where I can get to my financial freedom finish line. That point in time where I can quit working forever, should I so choose and never run out of money. That I'll live off the wealth that I accumulated. I'll live off passive income from rental property. And if I do do any kind of work at all, it could be work that I do for pleasure or fun, but not because I need it to live on. So when I look at that, and let's just make up some hypothetical numbers. Let's say somebody wanted to retire with you know, $3 million. They could figure out how much money they have today, what year they want to retire with today's equivalent of $3 million. And they could figure out how many years they have to get there. And you can, there's all kind of calculators online that you can go figure out. Like what, how much do you need to grow your net worth every year or every month to get there to that finish line? I figured it out. And then I figured out from that, how much do I need to live on? How much extra do I need up and above what I need to live on so I can feed the wealth building and a hundred doors gets it done. And then some, I mean, it really does. So that's all I'm doing. I'm not on this planet to like own a business and be all, you know, have all my ego and my purpose and mission tied up in my business. I'm here to be the best dad I can be, to be the best friend that my friends can have. I'm here to serve my clients, to be the best property manager they can have, but that doesn't define me. And when I kind of think about what do I want an average day to look like? Who do I want to be spending time with? What does a successful day look like for me? It doesn't really have anything to do with adding doors because I already know that the number I have gets me to where I ultimately want to be. And I don't have to focus on that or think about it. I'll add one other thing. It's really nice when you cap at 100. I only have to replace about 10 doors a year. That's less than one lead a month that I have to convert and <laughs> do a new account. I turn away a lot of business. I send them to my, I send them to my property manager friends, I'll cherry pick them. If a really good one comes along and I'm maxed, I'll still figure out a way to get that one in um, because I know I'm gonna lose a few later on. So there's there's a lot of benefits to only having a limited number a hundred door portfolio that you run and operate yourself.
1: I love it. So constraints is what keeps coming up, right? There are so many examples where constraints breed good things, regardless of whether or not the constraint was even the goal. The fact that it exists, is a, it's a forcing function. Parkinson's law would be an example of that, right? The work expands to fill the time assigned to it. You've chosen the hundred doors. And if every property management entrepreneur that was listening to this, if tomorrow you had to pare down to a hundred doors... We're pretty sure that what would happen in the process, the sloughing off that would take place, would, in many cases, create a lot of wealth. We just did that for one of our clients. was managing around 800 doors. We did a portfolio analysis. We looked at what were the bottom performers. And I got to say, it is a little odd to me. I would kind of gutturally intuit that this makes sense, but I don't see any direct correlation between the doors that are... Where you're basically the revenue per door is the lowest and them taking up the most time. I don't have any explanation for that. We do see that correlating, and those are the ones that get cut. And so your average numbers in terms of your profit per door goes up, and obviously it's cutting out a huge amount of time. If anybody was to pare down to 100 doors, that act of the forcing function would require some really hard thinking. It doesn't mean that it's the right answer, that it's a thing to do, but constraints bring a lot of good things. Do you see the same thing that the doors where the revenue per door is lower tend to end up actually having a higher labor cost as well?
0: There's anecdotal examples where it doesn't. But in general, what I think of when I think of lower end doors, I'm I'm thinking back into the 90s and early 2000s when I had mine. They were, um, I had some Section 8 property. You've got your very cheapest, lowest end affordable housing that the city has. So you're attracting people that are living paycheck to paycheck. They don't always communicate real well. And you can't design your business to run with the homogeneity that I can't. I have a homogenous set of houses that attract a homogenous set of tenants. We have one system, one way of doing it for everybody. There's no exception handling. There's no special anything that has to happen. And when you can do that and run everything exactly the same way for everybody, then it just cuts out a lot of the effort. I don't have any proof or evidence that the lower value doors require more effort, but it just seems that they probably do when you have people that are going to be more exposed to financial hardship than, you know, my tenant working at Dell computer or over at Freescale and they're on a, you know, six figure salary job. They don't pay their rent late. They know how to go online and put on a repair request. They know how to communicate when the repairman calls. Everybody just kind of knows how to get done whatever needs to get done. And that just takes all the work off of me. I don't have to help them figure it out. I don't have to be on the phone. I don't have to get a translator. I don't have to do anything different for anybody.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally makes sense. So. Let's talk about some of the permutations or, or how we might be able to stretch this metaphor of what your business looks like for other entrepreneurs. Obviously, this, this isn't going to apply for somebody that's trying to get to 10000 doors. But for that person right now that's managing two, 300 doors, you mentioned that you're managing 100 doors half-time. It's high margin. So therefore, theoretically, you could manage 200 doors full-time, correct?
0: I could probably do two or three hundred. Um, If I leveraged up the virtual assistant and hired a full-time leasing agent, I already have my maintenance outsourced to my main vendor, and he's the first responder on most of my calls, and we have software set up to handle all that. So actually, I'm talking with somebody right now to help document what I do because it's all in my head so that I can uh, document a lot of those systems and start handing off more tasks to the virtual assistant have it more documented, because I'm 55. And so now I'm thinking, okay, I'm over the hill, I'm kind of on cruise control here, I'm at cruising altitude. But what if something happened to me? Am I still going to be doing this in 10 years? Um, Probably not. So now I'm kind of thinking at this stage of the end game, how can I make the business as automated and uh, operational without me as possible? That's just my latest thing that I've been thinking of. I've got a long time to work on it. But that's where I'm heading with it. I think all of us now, we don't have to add employees and brick and mortar. We can do a lot with virtual assistants. And there are some big companies that are really doing that effectively.
1: So having honed this idea of being profitable, small, and put a lot of thought into it, you think that you could double the size of your portfolio, get to 200 doors without any additional full-time employees? Is that what I'm hearing you say?
0: Yeah, I could do that easy. I mean, I did 240 by myself. And back when there was no technology, it was all manual phone calls from uh, newspaper ads in the paper and you drove out and met people and nobody had a cell phone. You know, everything was old school. Um, I did have a full time leasing agent, but I did half of the leasing myself. Now with ShowMojo, I can deploy a platoon of agents by just adding them into my software and I could cover any amount of showings that I need to without having to hire an agent at all. I just pay them commissions.
1: What are your thoughts on um, self showings and lock boxes instead of paying the commission? Um, I,
0: I don't do those. I know that they're done effectively by some property managers, but it just—I'm uh, not there yet.
1: Got it. So potentially of interest, but it just hasn't—it hasn't worked out this far.
0: I like meeting people at the property. I like talking to them. I think a human being should be there to open the door, to make sure it got locked up, to answer questions, to provide a service. I'm not knocking the people that do it. If I was in rural Montana and I had some place 50 miles up the mountain, then I put one of those boxes on there for sure. The traffic in Austin is really, really bad. And there have been days when I've thought, man, you know, it would be nice if I just put one of those boxes up here and let them come let themselves in. But I'm just not there yet.
1: When we talk about the kind of labor efficiency that you're getting right now, I want to hear more about... What you don't do, I want to hear more about scope of services. You, you're apparently operating pretty efficiently. The number one plague of profitability in this industry is the phrase, we're staffed for growth, which is another way of saying making money is not a priority for us. That, that's another way of saying the same thing. Tell me, tell me about how you can operate with this kind of efficiency. What don't you do?
0: Well, um I don't do probably 90% of the things that other property managers do. First thing I don't do is I don't take a property that I don't think is a good fit. Um, I won't take the owner. I won't take the account if they're not buying in to, you know, how I'm going to do things. I don't get permission to do things. If you were my tenant and you put in a repair request today that your AC crapped out in 100 degree heat, my AC guy goes out there. He calls me. He says it's a goner. I'm telling them to swap it out. The owner will find out about it later, but we're moving forward. And I already got all the permission I need from my owner in the management agreement. So I operate with a high level of pre-authorization and decision-making power. I rarely talk to an owner, very rarely. I communicate to them through a note on the monthly statement if something's needed or I'll call them and talk to them if I have a kind of a one-off thing going on that I need to talk to them about. So the main thing I don't do then is over-communicate with my clients. I don't over-communicate with my tenants. We just keep everything bare bones and and run it really, really lean.
1: Love it. Okay, so the pushback then is that maybe that approach is gonna be harder to scale. If you are trying to get to 500 doors, all the scrubbing that you're doing to qualify owners and properties, right? Like some of these things do pretty directly uh, push back against a high growth premise. Is that fair to say?
0: It's fair to say, but let's say you can run 100 doors at a 75% owner operator profit margin where 75% of your gross is coming right down to you, you know, on your tax return or in an owner benefit some way. I mean, it's, it's the number you would produce if you were selling the business. Let's say if you grew to 300 and had a uh, 25% profit. Well, like, well, what have you really grown? <laughs> you know, what have you actually grown? Steve, 20, I'm trying to grow my bottom line, not my unit count. I don't really care about the unit count. Steve, 25%
1: profit in this industry is great because, again, 6% is the average.
0: I think, I think that's probably a little bit low. I don't know what the polling or how that, how that came about, but I would expect most mom and pop property manager, owner-operators ought to be able to bust out at least 50% profit margin. If they don't, they're doing something terribly wrong. Oh, they're wow. Doing
1: this guy's... I am deeply enjoying this. I am deeply enjoying hearing (laughs) Steve's perspective and assumptions about how other people behave based on how he behaves.
0: These aren't complicated numbers. (laughs) I mean, the numbers aren't really that complicated.
1: Yeah. So, uh, Steve, I got to tell you, this was not a survey. It was an actual study. We got around 70 companies to provide us their full operational and financial data. We didn't ask people how they think they're doing. We got the actual data went line by line item. The 70 got boiled down to around 50 that actually had complete enough data for us to work with. The average was 12% before we adjusted for, uh, for the noise around owner compensation and people kind of distorting things to avoid taxable income. But it did come down to 6%. So this is mind-blowing when you think about contrasting what Steve is advocating versus doing something dramatically less profitable at scale. And when I say scale, I'm talking about three or four hundred doors. That's what's kind of a little perverse and warped about this situation, is that you may, you may like or not like Steve's philosophy of staying in a hundred doors. You may like or not like the implications of being one of that less successful guys at the next NARP from the vet telling them about your 100-door portfolio. But at the end of the day, for you to be making an equivalent absolute dollar amount profit that Steve is making at those kind of margins at 6%, percent you got to be managing a lot of doors to, to, to get to that same equivalent. Well,
0: it, it just blows my mind what you're telling me. I have no idea what those people are doing. To me, a property management business, if you're running it at a owner-operator, small mom-and-pop, By mom and pop, I really mean, you know, up to about 300 or maybe a husband and wife couple or a two-person team, maybe with one or two employees, you know, should be able to handle that pretty easily. It should be a pretty profitable business. And even, I mean, these are dollars that are relative to the community that you're operating in. So for somebody in like a little town in Iowa, if they're making a six-figure income, that maybe uh, you know they're upper middle class in their little town. If you're if you're only making 150,000 in the Bay Area, you're you're not really making you're not living a middle class lifestyle or, or you unless you bought your home a long time ago. So these are relative do- dollars. In my city, my average rents are 1,900 for the homes that I manage. But our average homes now in Austin in Austin proper. Um, you're paid about five, six hundred thousand dollars to get anything really close in, our major metro area, we're at about a three hundred thousand dollar median. So how much does somebody need to make to be at the you know median income for Austin? You need to be making about eighty hundred thousand dollars a year. It's easy to double or triple that in our market as an owner operator property manager. Now if I was in another market where the average rents were maybe a thousand or eight hundred, but you can buy a good home for maybe 150 or 120,000 then i wouldn't need to make as much and i'd still be able to live my my upper middle class lifestyle and plow away plenty for the retirement you know for the financial freedom finish line so i just can't believe how somebody would even stay in the business for 6% profit unless they're taking a big healthy salary before that 6% gets computed? Well,
1: so the way that we calculated that, that's where the 12 went down to 6%. We developed our own pay scale of what we thought a, a market-based wage was. And we backed out any form of owner compensation and we replaced it with that. And that's where adjusted it adjusted. It came down from 12 down to six. But I, I hear you. It's, it's definitely some challenging math to work with. I'm really interested with what you said previously about just kind of noting people being down on working in the business you got to work on the business it makes sense like the nut of that idea seems to make sense but again the context is important the context is relevant and for a lot of folks they don't have enough economic productivity being driven by the business to justify doing anything other than working like a dog to make the the salary that they're making you obviously have defied that that expectation if you're thinking about the delineation that you have between the high authority versus the low authority that you previously articulated, can you kind of talk me through that mindset? Were you always that way? Was that also a shift? And how do you think other folks respond to this high authority fiduciary uh, mindset? Because obviously a lot of folks simply aren't there.
0: Well, I, I kind of lucked into it. I backed into it. So I built that business that I talked about earlier. I scaled it down. Um, when I sold it in 2004, I had 135 doors and I was out. I got out of the business. I never meant to be a property manager my entire life. It was good. I took a year off. I took my family on a six week vacation. I did for the first time in eight, 10 years, I didn't have a pager. I Nothing could happen that would have required me. So I had a whole year off, had a whole year to kind of think about what kind of business did I want to do next. Started a little telecom company tried business brokerage, kind of neither of those really panned out. I ended up getting sucked back into real estate in 05, but selling to investors. And I did that and we had a really strong market in Austin and it was a really good gig. And they kept asking me to manage the homes that I would sell them. I said, no, I don't do that anymore. Um, But in 08, I finally started to crack a little. And I thought, you know, if I just took a little 50 unit portfolio, I could do that in my sleep, you know. That would be nothing. And so the first investor I said, "Okay, I'll do it, but you have to give me 100% authority. It's I'm making all the decisions. I'm not going to call you for permission." He goes, "No, that's what I want. That's that's, you know, I don't want to hear from you." I'm like, "Okay." And then that's the script. I started building it every single door I take, I get organically. I meet the owner, I go look at the house, I talk to them on the phone. And I make sure that they understand that there's a whole spectrum of property managers, some of the communication styles, some inform their owners about everything. I mean, they have software that essentially tweets the owner when the tenant puts in a repair request. It dings the owner when they send a repair guy, it dings the owner again. They hire these outsourced companies to call the owner and get permission to spend $200 or whatever, I don't do any of that. I tell the owner from the front end, if you hire me, I'm making all the decisions. You're giving me permission up front to handle the property. You trust me. I'm never going to pester you with anything. If it's something big and important, I'll let you know what I did and why I did it, but it will always be what's best for the property and what's best for your property and preserving the asset and then I literally give them the air conditioning e- example. And then I give them a water heater example. If your water heater craps out, we're swapping it out. We're not wasting any time. I'm not going to have the tenant calling me, wanting to know when it's going to be done. It's, it's already being done. And so I have a nice stable of about 75 owners with 100% buy-in. And I never get one iota, not one bit of trouble at all from any of them period. When I go and, and I teach a workshop on this, <laughs> on how to get the authority you need up front so that you can run your business the way you want, um, property managers literally don't believe me. Um, they just don't believe me sometimes. They'll raise their hand and say, so you're telling me you're just going to swap out that AC and, tell, and you're going to email the owner and tell them they need to send you $5,400. And I say, yeah, well, Why wouldn't they be upset? I go, because we already talked about it when they hired me. And it's not an unexpected event. We don't know which five or 10 properties every year we're going to have to swap out a unit on, but it's going to happen. Why shouldn't I have already prepared for that and give the best service I can to my tenant? We don't take home warranties. I only use my vendors and they have high authority themselves. So, So they don't call me and say, Hey, Steve, this water heater is a goner. They call me and say, hey, Steve, this water heater is a goner. We're swapping it out. And I'm like, good. Have you already told the tenant? And they're like, yeah, we've already told the tenant. We'll have it here in a little while and we'll get it done. So to me, that's the way to run this business. If you're running it that way, you don't need a bunch of staff because you don't have all this communication going on that's a permission-based property management business where you're constantly seeking permission to do the most mundane, predictable, routine things to the property that you should have already gotten permission to do before you even took the account. And it should be in your management agreement that this is how it's going to go.
1: I love this. So this is part of the qualification process. On the front side, you tell people this and some people are going to say that doesn't work for me. And you can part ways you never work with them in the first place. At the end of the day, communication is everything unrealistic expectations are resentment waiting to happen. So if the owner had some unrealistic expectations, you can sniff them out on the front side. I am curious, somebody's listening to this though, and I know what they're thinking. They're thinking, what are your reserve requirements? Are you truly saying you have no authorization caps or limits? Like what's the deal there?
0: Uh, it's 500 written into the management agreement, but then there's an exclusion written in that excludes air conditioning, water heater, roof repairs, or how do I have it phrased? Any no option uh, situation or no choice. It's like, there's no option. We're not going to not replace the water heater. There's nothing to talk about at brokers sole discretion at brokers sole discretion. So I essentially have a blank check within the scope of those major mechanical things, or if a big tree, we just had a massive windstorm in Austin. It hit up north, but it blew down a bunch of trees. Um, if a big giant tree fell on the roof of one of my houses, I'm sending my tree guy out there to chop it up and haul it off. It may cost $1,100. It may cost 2000 It may only cost six or 800 I don't know. We don't care. We're going in and getting the tree down and off the property, and we're going to make it safe. Those are things that are no option. We're not going to like leave it there while we get bids. And while I try to get a hold of the owner to get permission, it would be dumb.
1: Have, um, you, have you ever been burned to paying for that? I, I, what I'm hearing you say is you're paying for that out of pocket.
0: I don't pay for it out of pocket. I get billed by my vendors. So we don't pay anybody up front or upon completion. They bill me. So there's typically a 30 day bill out. I'll just email the owner and say, you need to send me money. And then I give them a link to pay lease and they can go fund their account with a credit card or a checking account and put the money in but no i've never been burned
1: wow because you're qualifying these people on the front side you are telling them how they work you're making sure that it's the it's the right owner and the right property okay so so again context it's like you're giving advice that could be completely dysfunctional non-functional advice for somebody that's managing 500 units and had no discrimination for how they built that portfolio right
0: yeah, I think it's it's easy for me to say all this stuff that I say, but let's use this as an example. What if I bought a 200 unit company? and all of these owners are preconditioned to how their old property manager did things. How do I assimilate them? How do I be like the Borg and like say you will be assimilated? And you know, I did that back in 98. I bought somebody else's property a management company. It was 68 doors when i sat and went through the owner on you know each account she go oh and for this one she really likes to get her money by the 6th and this one here even though the management agreement says there's a $300 repair cap she really wants you to call her about anything and there are all this all these exceptions that had to be built in and i bought that business in september of 98 and in november i mailed out a letter to all of the owners and to try to get them normalized So these are the changes I'm making to the management agreement. This is how things are going to go. And I lost 16, 16 of those houses. And, but you know what? The rest of them were all on board and doing it my way. And so I was happy to lose them. I was happy to let them go away because I'm not going to, you know, every owner gets their money the same day of the month, period. That's just the way it goes. Um, there's, I'm not doing anything different for anybody, period. I will let them go find another property manager. Hmm. So anytime I think about making significant changes, I tend to
1: think about a basic framework that says, on the downside, what's the worst that could happen? On the high side, what's the best that could happen? When people hear part of what you're advocating, some of the, some of the natural response may be, well, my owners may not like it, or it could introduce friction. And that's a real, you know that's a real possibility. but most property management entrepreneurs can quantify how bad that could be. What I'm observing here is that the potential upside of having the level of authority that you're talking about is really disproportionately weighted in terms of how efficiently it allows the business to operate.
0: I, I can more massively leverage the operational friction that happens in this business simply with the level of authority that I have than other people can do with two additional employees and all of the communication involved and getting stuff in writing or calling the owner or getting bids and all of this. If you're the decision maker and you have full attitude to just make the decision and you're also operating as a fiduciary, I am only doing things that are in the best interest of my owner and preserving that asset. And one of the assets I'm preserving is the landlord-tenant relationship. When these tenants get really good maintenance service, when things go really well for them, when something breaks, then they're more likely to stay and renew the lease. So all the way around, there's no aspect of my way that doesn't make sense. Now, if I grew bigger, how could I delegate that down to staff and teach them how to operate with that mindset? I don't know. That may be tough. It may be easier for you know, when you're the one and only, um, that may be easier. So it may be tougher to, you know, make it trickle down into staff, but um, it can be done. It can be done. And you just start with the management agreement and you start with the onboarding and the expectations that are set with that owner at that first meeting when you're explaining to them how things are going to go. I, I believe this. I believe almost every owner could be the, a great owner. I think that most property managers have a mindset or a belief that that more communication is better service. And it's not. It's just more communication. It's more opportunity for confusion and things to get fouled up. A lot of property managers take people that would be a perfectly good owner in my system and they onboard them and enculturate them into their system of overcommunication And they actually turn them in to pesky, bothersome owners. They invite them to become what they say they don't want, but they've invited it with their policies and procedures and their communication by involving the owner in everything they do.
1: Sure. Conditioning. And obviously, there are some obvious cases where that becomes a liability, thinking about like tenant screening, et cetera. There are obviously some some obvious bright lines that have to be put in place. I like the way that you put that. You are talking about a mindset, but... I have to assume that that could be pushed down in so much as the mindset of the fiduciary thinking is being codified in policy. If it's being codified in a contract...
0: I think a good leader could do it. I think a good, like, um, uh, uh, let's say you take a retired tech guy out of the tech world. Maybe he retired from Dell and he's going to start a property management company and he ran a big team or managed a big division. A guy like that or a gal like that Probably knows how to manage people and how to um, you know lead them by setting the example and doing things like that. I've always been more of a solo operator. I'm the first to admit it. One of the reasons I'm small is I just don't find any joy in managing people and trying to coach them and get them to do things the way I want. Way back in the '80s, I managed Domino's Pizza restaurants. <laughs> And um, I managed a big one over by UT campus, and we'd have to hire like 70 drivers every August and train them and get them going. It just drove me crazy. It, it just, people, I don't want to deal with employees. So when I hear owners say, oh, I never talk to an owner, I never talk to a tenant, my employees do all that, I think, yeah, but you have to deal with employees. I don't have to deal with any employees. I don't deal with anybody not coming into work, calling in sick you know whatever is going on it's just me mm-hmm. yeah i mean so going back to
1: what i said earlier about the word staffing for growth really just being a huge problem in this industry folks bring on the staff to do the work so that they don't have to do it and then the idea is that it all balances out because once we've done that i'll work on growth the problem is that most property managers, very few property managers have really cultivated the skill of sales marketing. It's a separate skill set. It's not the same thing as as property management. It's not somewhat similar. It's its own distinct skill set. And if your goal is to aggressively, let's say you want to get to a thousand doors within four or five years, that's something you're going to have to operationalize in the same way that you've operationalized all aspects of property management. So if you're not willing, or you haven't demonstrated the capacity to operate Sales and marketing in that regard. But so basically, you're making a bet. You're hiring the staff that's introducing that labor cost, eating your profit margin on the bet that you can grow into it. And it's that lag where people get in trouble because oftentimes the growth just doesn't materialize.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: This is a little off topic, but I am curious to hear your opinion on pocket listings. So basically, with the churn, I would say that globally, we're seeing a trend of churn being higher because of a strong sales market. A lot of non-investor, accidental landlords that wanted to get out, they're wanting to flip their properties. So that overall unit churn translates to revenue churn. But you can plug the leak by passing those sales onto the brokerage side of the business. Even better if you can take that property and sell it from one owner to another owner. Do you have any experience with that? Do you have any opinion on dual agency and and that whole thing?
0: Um, Well, I don't try to double side any of my sales listings. And really because of the, and and there's a little bit of fuzzy gray area between what is really property management income and what is sales team income. My profit on the sales team is not nearly as high as the property management because I have two sales agents that do all the buyer listings and I give them a 75% cut. So I'm only getting 25% of the buyer sales, but I don't ever have to go drive a buyer around or do anything. I have two agents to do that. On the listings, I take those myself. But if you were my seller and we were putting a property on the market in Austin, Texas, there'd be no rational reason not to give it full MLS exposure. I just put a listing up uh, Sunday. We had multiple offers It went under contract today. I just put another one in today in our MLS as a coming soon. That one I'll have live Friday. We price it, we stage it, we photograph it, we do everything with the intention of drawing multiple offers from the full full market that's out there. It wouldn't in this kind of market today, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be right of me to say to a owner, "Hey, Oh, you want to sell your house? I have another one of my owners who would buy it from you. Here's what it's worth. You should sell it because a lot of times they're selling at five, ten percent over market value with the exposure to the to the full market and the multiple offers that come in. If we were in a balanced market where it's neither the sellers or the buyers with the upper hand, I wouldn't have such a problem doing that. But in this kind of market, we don't know what the house is worth. We have to let the market determine what it's worth. This is another profit center within the property management business is sales. So one of my property owners, because I have a good one-to-one relationship with her, um, they've got a new job out in California, hired me to sell not the home that I manage, but their home that they lived in. This is a $600,000 home. Which is, you know, kind of on the upper for our market. That would be low in California. They're having to buy a dump for a million bucks out in California. They're so sad. I mean, this is a really, really nice six hundred thousand dollar house. Well, they hired me to sell it and I sold it. Well, that's an eighteen thousand dollar commission. That all of it goes to my bottom line. It's not any harder to sell a house than it is to lease a house. In fact, it's more work and more liability to lease a house than it is to sell it is that commission income is that it, it ties directly back to the property management company because it's an existing property management client or does it go on to my sales team side when we sell to an investor who contacted us because they were looking for a property manager but they haven't purchased a home yet um, and then we sell them one and we sell it into our portfolio i think that's income from the property management business We could split it out and kind of calculate it and call it a referral or do something like that. But there is a synergy between these two operations that I think a lot of people are not capitalizing on. They'll run a maintenance company, 100 doors isn't enough to do that, or they'll have other profit centers within their business. But for me, the sales operation is one of the biggest, best things to marry on to a property management company if you can do it effectively and provide really good service to your owners, it's a one plus one equals three.
1: It's a needed service, right? It's not a stretch. This is something that these people absolutely need. Somebody is going to do it. Might as well be you. Would we look at calculating lifetime values for our client? This is something that we're looking at factoring in is basically you can know in advance what percentage of your properties are going to what percentage of your churn rate are properties that you will actually capture on the sales side? And I think that I think there is a very strong argument for that being factored into the overall customer lifetime
0: value. We're capturing pretty much all of them. I mean, all of my owners, I won't say all, but essentially every one of them, let me list the property. They already know me. They already trust me. They already see that we're not just a property management company. We're a full service company. We're affiliated with Keller Williams. So, I fly the KW banner when we're doing sales and on the leasing. And then the property management is just a separate brokerage. But we're kind of one unit, but two companies within that. The average sale, I was figuring this out earlier. It used to be a lot higher. The average sales commission is equal to about three or four months or three or four years of the gross property management commission. So when I close on a home that I've sold out of the portfolio, I'm taking away from the closing table, three and a half, four months of the future income that that property would have brought in to me had it stayed in the portfolio as a management property. But it's super easy to replace. And it just kind of turbo the annual total gross. When you add property management and the sales all together, that big top number that you end up with in QuickBooks is pretty sweet. So what I sell, in a, it's like asking, would you give away this property for four years, three and a half, four years worth of management fee income? Some managers would, some wouldn't. It used to be five or six years of income, but the ratios of the sales to rent value ratios have gotten out of whack in our market.
1: Right. Yeah. And really, depending on the health of your business and how much revenue you're extracting on the management side also helps you kind of factor in that equation. I am curious. I have a couple of clients that are, that work in the Keller Williams network. Any opinions or take on where Keller Williams is moving? Obviously, there were some big announcements that came out within the last couple of months. Do you think they're, they're really going to make a, an honest and significant dent in the property management universe?
0: No. There I don't we go. think so. <laughs> they don't even let managers manage property. I mean, I do it because I'm a broker and I have a completely separate corporate entity, but Color Williams is very risk averse. Their compliance structure is very strong. The training is very strong. I love the people. The technology is weak. And that's just proven by the fact that the in-house technology that's given to agents for free, the adoption rate is very, very low. Most None of the big high producing teams, none of the high producing solo agents are going out and doing all that production with the in-house tools that are given to them. They're going out and using third-party software and technology to do it. But I love the people. I love the brand. Um, I love the training. Uh, Gary Keller's book, The Millionaire Real Estate Agent, is like a Bible to me. Everyone should read that book, even if you own a pest control company (laughs) or any kind of small business at all. The Red Um, Book. it says right in there, you know, they have the seven levels, but not everybody's gonna wanna grow to that seventh level. Some people are happy at one or two, and that's somebody like me. I'm really, really happy with the income I can generate on a small, closely held, really tightly run ship. Um, I have no desire to build a big team. I saw those in 2008 when our market came down, and you had these agents that had 10, 20 buyer agents a separate office, all this overhead, and it all just came crashing down because they weren't built to survive a dip. And that's what we had. So I think it's better to run lean, keep it steady, just make more when the market's really good. But when it's in a dip, you're, you're already set to keep cruising. You don't have to worry about you know how you're going to handle that.
1: Yeah, I love it. Well, um, Steve, if folks want to get in touch or learn more about your business, where's the best place for them to go?
0: Um, they can go to austinpropertymanager.com, click the contact form, and shoot me a message. All right, sounds
1: good. I'm going to, with your permission, I'm going to link to the presentation, How to Operate a Low Effort, High Profit, Small Property Management Company, that's hosted on the NARPAM website. You good with that?
0: Yep, yep, that's fine. That's the one I do. And um, it's the opposite, <laughs> the opposite mindset of what NARPAM People generally preach, but that's why I do it. I think people should hear the other side of the the other side of the story.
1: Yeah, I am so with you. At the end of the day, if profit is the gold and we're speaking the same language, I appreciate you coming on the show today. And uh, stay in touch.
0: Yeah, no problem. I enjoyed it. Thanks.
1: Thanks for tuning in to the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Please subscribe and leave us a review your feedback makes this a better show. And the more reviews we get, the better our guests become. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget that you can find us online in the Profitable Property Management Facebook group, where we mastermind with the best in the industry.